Good morning. First point, it is so good to be with you today. Uh, Jamie and I are just delighted to be visiting here among you. We've been praying for you. Uh, we've enjoyed getting to know your elders over recent months. We're looking forward to getting to know you today uh, and hope that you come back this evening. I'll uh, try not to give away too much information about myself during the sermon so that you're just uh, feeling the need to come back and talk to us more. Uh, don't be shy coming up and talking to Jamie and I. We want to meet you. Be patient with us as we ask you your names more than once, but we want to get to know you. So uh, talk to us. Uh, your church has, has been through some difficult seasons in the last several months, uh, and we're praying with you. Uh, we are together trusting that God is at work in you. God is with you. We're trusting that God is working providentially in your church, uh, and we pray that he will continue to do that. But uh, as we come today to God's word, we're not here to hear me. We're here to listen to the word of God, right? So as we prepare to do that, would you just take one more time and turn with me to God in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and we praise you. God, you are so good to us. We, we praise you today, O oh God, for as your word says, you are the God who made the world and everything in it. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. You do not live in temples made by man, nor are you served by human hands as if you needed anything. Since you yourself give life to mankind and breath and everything, Father, we praise you, for you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. Father, I pray that today our, 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 the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened as we turn to your word. Father, let us hear and rightly respond to what your word teaches today. Father, let your Holy Spirit illumine the word of God to us so that we can see it clearly. Father, give me clarity and the ability to speak to your people this morning. Give all of us hearts that are filled with worship as we delight in what we see in your good word, God. Meet with us here, even now, Almighty God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Well, we live in what one author calls the age of the spectacle. As humans, we are hardwired with an appetite for a sight, for a performance, for a show. And our world today does not disappoint in giving us one, does it? Social media platforms spend billions of dollars customizing spectacles that will ensure that you look at their app for another 30 seconds. A 24-hour news cycle provides endless updates, all of which happen to be breaking news, uh, which if you miss, you will be hopelessly lost and outdated. Smartphones ping with retina display notifications, engineered to, to constantly pull you in deeper. As Floridians, you know well how theme parks in our world today offer nonstop 
perfectly choreographed amusements for both child and parent, spending millions of dollars to make sure they grab and keep your attention. The list could go on, it's endless. Amazing viral videos, flawless halftime shows, electrifying sports arenas, exhilarating concerts. None of these inherently wrong, but all of them calling for our attention. As Tony Ranke observes, he writes, we are distracted spectacle seekers. And why do we seek spectacles? Because we're human, hardwired with an unquenchable appetite to see glory. Our hearts seek splendor as our eyes scan for greatness. We cannot help it. As another writer writes, man has an almost infinite appetite for distraction. Just think about it. How many distractions did you have to cut out of your life this week just to have a meaningful conversation with someone? How many distractions do you have to cut out of your life right now just to be present in this church service? Friends, quite honestly, this appetite for a spectacle is in you and in me. We are spectacle seekers living in the distraction-filled age of the eye. And yet, meanwhile, as we turn to the psalm for this week, as we study through the book of Psalms, Psalm 19, today's passage speaks to those who will listen. It says something far more consequential than the world's passing amusements offer to our eyes. In, in three words, Psalm 19 has, says, God has spoken. That's right. Amidst a world of infinite potential spectacles, stop and consider this with me. The God of the universe has chosen to reveal himself to mankind, to you. He has revealed himself in the physical world around us speaking in a way that cannot be ignored and ought not be missed. He has revealed himself in his word, speaking in a way that is of incomparable value and worth. And this demands our response. This is the outline, the point of today's text. I want you to see this for yourself today in God's word. If you've brought your Bibles, open to Psalms 19. If you're new here today, Welcome. I'm new too. <laughs> As I preach today, I'm just simply going to be talking through what God's Word says. So, if this is your first time, it will help you just to have your Bible open and follow along as I explain what the Bible says. You can make sure that what I'm saying aren't my ideas, but are simply the ideas that God has given in His Word. Well, Psalm 19 has three clear sections which build on each other. For my sermon, I'll simply use those three sections as my three main points in the text. So first, if, if you're taking notes, three points will be first, the witness which God gives from verses 1 to 6. Second, the word which we need from 7 to 10. And third, the response it deserves from 11 to 14. So witness, word, response. First, let's begin by asking, what is the witness that God gives? 
Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6, and notice how creation is the witness which God himself gives. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In, him, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Notice the central idea of the passage directly stated in the first verse, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. There is an announcement going on here, a witness, a, a declaration, a, a proclamation. More than just a sight to see, creation is speaking. We see it testifies in this verse to three things. First, it, it points to the existence of God. Second, his glory. And third, the fact that creation is his handiwork, the work of, of his hands. Friends, in our fallen sinful state, we cannot know anything on our own about God unless he first reveals it to us. Here we see that in creation, God has designed a testimony to himself. The heavens declare it. The sky proclaims it. So, so picture it. Can, can, can you picture a glorious sunset that you have witnessed? Or perhaps, perhaps remember the last plane ride that you took, and you found yourself breaking through the sunlit cloud cover to see the, the expanse of the blue sky. Or perhaps recall in your mind a clear, starry night where you witnessed more stars than you can count. The heavens are pointing to God's glory. Notice here, the text does not say the heavens are God's glory, but they declare the glory of God. They announce it to us. As I reflected on this this week, I couldn't help but wonder if, if God's creation itself is so glorious, and here we see it is only the messenger, how glorious must God himself be? What will it be like to one day see him and not just his handiwork? Notice here also the text, in the text that God's revelation in his creation is continuous. We see this in verses 1 and 2. The verbs here, declare and proclaim, emphasize the, the continuous, ongoing nature of this. It's imperfect. It's not yet completed. It's not yet finished. It's ongoing. Tremper Logman uh, comments, and he says, it is a continual outcry of nature to God from the moment of creation until now and on into the future. And verse 2 restates this. Day after day, after day, God's creation can't stop speaking about his glory. Night after night after night is revealing, is exposing, is, is uncovering the knowledge of God's glory. 
This is continuous. Listen to John Piper's reflection on this continuous glory. I found this recently in his, in his new book, Providence. I, I commend it to you if you haven't read it yet. It fits so well with this passage. He writes, I used to look at sunrises when I was jogging and think that God had created a beautiful world. Then, I became less, then it became less general and more specific, more personal. I said, every morning God paints a different sunrise. He never gets tired of doing it again and again. But then it struck me. No, he doesn't do it again and again. He never stops doing it. The sun is always rising somewhere in the world. God guides the sun 24 hours every day and paints sunrises at every moment, century after century, without one second of respite, and never grows weary or less thrilled with the work of his hands. Even when cloud cover keeps man from seeing it, God is painting spectacular sunrises above the clouds. Friends, this is incessant. The skies and the clouds the expanse above, it's always present. It's always testifying. It's always pointing to the reality of the creator and to his glory. This is what creation is saying. Well, if verses 1 and 2 of this testimony emphasize that he speaks all the time, verses 3 through 6 emphasize that he speaks, that it speaks to all places and therefore all created people. Now, at this point, you may say, uh, Pastor Jeff, this, the skies don't actually have a tongue. They have no mouth. What do you mean that they are saying these things to all people? Well, actually, this is the, the question of verse 3. Verse 3, there is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. It, these are mute witnesses. These are witnesses without words. And yet, verse 4 says, their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. You can see that the picture between verses 3 and 4 is that even without physical tongues, the message of creation is everywhere. It is clear, and it is universal. One commentator explains that these mute witnesses, without sound and language, are yet loudspeakers, heralds understood everywhere. Understood everywhere. Uh, our, our family is coming here from the Middle East, where my wife and I have spent the last uh, 11 years or so learning to speak Arabic. We arrived there 11 and a half years ago, and we began studying Arabic every day four hours a day with a private language tutor, then several hours every afternoon in study, trying to learn what we, trying to take in what we had learned, and then several hours every evening using it in the community, trying to, to work. And we studied full time for almost two years. And then many years after that continued in order to become fluent in this language. And in all this, we worked hard to be understood in just one place. We then only to come back, meet someone like our friend David, who's leading a Spanish ministry just next door to us, and talking to him yesterday, and realizing that once again, here is another language where I can communicate almost nothing. 
<laughs> I can walk across this building into that Spanish ministry right now and try to speak and get almost nowhere with what I try to say. My words, despite my best efforts, do not go out to the end of the earth. I am, am limited. But the revelation of God in creation is not limited. Throughout all the earth, this voice speaks. See, this language, these words uttered by the creator through creation need no translator. They are heard far and wide. Think specifically just about the sun. That's where the text turns to next. The sun's reach across the world cannot be ignored, and it reaches and touches everyone. Verse 4 and 5 gives two back-to-back -back illustrations, both about the sun, a groom and a runner. David writes, in them, the skies, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. How would a groom leave his dressing chamber into the wedding tent? Well, his entrance would be public. It would be glorious. It would in involve the whole village. There would be a celebration. You couldn't miss this event. Think in our own culture of, of the bride walking down the aisle. It's the moment that no one looks away. It's the glorious, eye-catching journey from the back to the front. In a similar way, the sun rises from the end of the heavens and completes its circuit to the end of them, and the sun's beauty is created to be glorious and to compel our attention to focus on it in our eyes. He explains further, verse 5, the second half, like a strong man, it runs its course with joy. How does an athlete run his course? Picture perhaps the strongest runner, a man like Usain Bolt, who in ease and grace crosses the finish line with a smile on his face. This is what the sun is like at the finish line of the day. With every sunset, it finishes its course with joy. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Friends, we are, we are made to be happy in God as we are compelled to see him in his creation. The sun compels us to open our eyes to see him. John Calvin explains it this way. He writes, The final goal of the blessed life, moreover, rests in the knowledge of God. Lest anyone then be excluded from access to happiness, God not only sowed in men's minds the seed of religion, of which we have spoken, but revealed himself and daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. He says this, As a consequence, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 1, verse 20, when he writes, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the world is without excuse. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, can, can I ask you, how do you explain the beauty 
of the world around you. Think about it. it could it be possible that, that God designed this creation as a testimony to his own glory? I believe that's what the text is saying here. If you're here today as a Christian who sometimes doubts, well, first of all, welcome to the club. But, but second of all, when facing doubts, we as Christians are, are to look this way to the way that God has revealed himself in the world. He has spoken and he has shown that he exists. It, it does take faith to believe in a God that we cannot see. But I would suggest it takes more faith to believe in a world like this one without a creator behind it. If you're here today as a Christian, let me encourage you, next time you marvel at a sunrise or a sunset, I was uh, telling the earlier service this morning, a sunrise caught my eye again. I was woken up at 4 a.m. by jet lag, went out to Walmart to grab some breakfast food, and sat there at the stoplight in the minivan, looked over and just saw the sun rising over the horizon and the pink and the orange hues coming up. I said, this is what I'm about to preach about in three hours, right? Next time you stop and marvel over a sunrise or, or a starry night catches your eye, don't merely marvel at the sky. The heavens are declaring the glory not themselves. Worship God when you see his glorious world. His world is saying, look, oh spectacle seeker, here is a glory that points to my glory, to God's glory. Well, we should move on. This, this psalm not only gives us the witness that God gives, but it shows us, number two, the word which we need. In verses 7 through 11, See, God has spoken generally in his word. But next we will see that he has spoken specifically in his word. And before I even read this, let me just point out to you how, how beautiful this is, what's happening in the text here. This is fascinating because in God's word, his, his revelation is becoming personal. Notice in verse 1, the psalmist refers to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And in the original language, he uses here the general word for God, the word that all nations would know and understand. But then in verses 7 and 8 and 9, several times over, and then again in verse 14, when he speaks of God's special revelation in his word, he changes to the covenant name for God, Yahweh, the, the, the name that we've heard about last week in, in uh, Pastor Bob's sermon to us. The, the implication here in this text is that we may know God's existence and glory generally through his creation. But, but first, Boynton, if, if you want to know God personally, you need to know him in covenant relationship. You can only get there through his word. That's the message of the text that it's pointing to. His general revelation is, is enough to hold you accountable to his existence. But it's not enough to, to show us the full character of who God is and the full way that he redeems us as needy humans. 
Well, how does God work through his word? Verses 7 through 11 are, are a poetic chorus for this choir master. You can imagine this being sung. Even in English, there's a, there's a clear rhythm and symmetry. Each verse has a chorus of praise, each delighting in God's word. So listen to it as I read it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Notice first the, the different terms for God's word that are used here. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, that the fear of the Lord, which I believe can be interpreted as the instruction in the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. Each of these are synonyms that are pointing us to think of God's revealed word in Scripture, in the Bible. Now, we should understand that for the original context of, of David and his hearers, this psalm and these references were likely speaking of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Which, by the way, I think of what that tells you, that David sees those five books as sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. Do you love your Old Testament to that degree? What a good challenge. Uh, but, however, I think for us, as, as New Covenant Christians reading this, we understand that the canon has been completed. And that, as Bob read earlier from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable to us. So, while David was looking here in a special way to the Torah, I don't think it's wrong for us to read this with the whole Bible in view. Because for us, the whole Bible represents the law of God, the testimony of God, the precepts of God, the commandments of God. So, so notice the descriptor words which the psalmist sings to delight in God's word. He says in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning complete. It's lacking nothing. It's sure, meaning the testimonies are trustworthy. You can trust them. It's, it's right, meaning they are straight and level. They're not twisted or false. It's Pure. It's without error, without any impurities in it. It's clean. The word is unmixed with falsehood. And the word of God is true. It is firm. It is faithful. God's word is reliable. Because God's word is an extension of himself. And it is without error. Notice then also in this song, psalm and song what the, the word of God does. That is, why do you need the Bible in your life? Because, and the reason is, because God's word 
brings transformation. That's the thrust of the text. So, so look at the text. Is your soul weary? Verse 7, in its completeness, God's word revives your soul. It brings healing. Do you need true wisdom, eternal wisdom? Verse 7b, in being trustworthy, God's word makes simple people wise. Do you, does your heart need joy in your life? Verse 8, the precepts of God's word are so straight and untwisted that they bring true, lasting joy to your heart. Do you need to see clearly in your home, in your work, in your life about God? Verse 8b says, the commands of God are pure, like a lens free from imperfections, and so they will enlighten your eyes. Do you need to stand on something lasting in this shifting world? Verse 9 says that the instruction which fears God is not mixed with any falsehood, so it will endure forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you long for true goodness in your life? Do you long for true righteousness? Verse 9b, it says, the rules of God are never false. They are righteous altogether. In them is only goodness. Friends, God's word transforms, and it is for your good. Now, with each of these uh, relationships, which I just read here, there is more insight and, and joy than I could possibly explore in just a few minutes in a sermon. You need to return to these and meditate on them for yourself. You need to consider how God's word is effectual in giving life to his people. But, but let me just help you by just giving you just one example of how this encouraged me in my life, even this week. So notice in verse 8, it says, the precepts of the Lord are right, or without falsehood, without twistedness, rejoicing the heart. Recently, I was in a situation where I was being lied about. I don't think it was ill will, but it certainly wasn't true, and to be honest, it was very painful. Uh, these lies were not right, they were not without falsehood, and they did not rejoice my heart. No, actually, for several days afterwards, going about my life and work in the Middle East, I was just discouraged. My heart was just heavy. And then I came and meditated on this verse. And I remembered that God's word never lies about my condition. His word always only speaks rightly about me both about my sin and about my obedience. I thought about his precepts, his instructions, and how they tell me that it's a man, to man's glory to overlook an offense. His word reminded me that my sin is actually far worse than the lies that were being told about me said it is. I'm actually much worse than that. And I was thankful for the gospel and its covering of my sin when I thought on his precepts. Now, now this is just one example from one week in my life. Uh, what about you? Let me encourage you, pick just one of these lines this week and, and see if it's true in your life. 
Meditate on it and see if God's word works like David says it will work. And if you do, I, I guarantee you, you'll arrive where the psalmist arrives in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Gold, valuable worth of, of great desire. Fine gold, the most valuable riches the psalmist could have. Honey, the sweetest taste. And honeycomb, the storehouse of, of pleasure dripping from it. God's word is more valuable than the greatest riches that you could find. And tastes better than the sweetest thing that you can taste. So just a brief word of application. Christians, I've already encouraged you here. But you need to be meditating on this word like you believe that's true. Fathers, as, as you lead your homes, do you lead your family in such a way to see uh, that God's, this, the incomparable greatness of God's word in your home? But what about the mothers here? As you, as you mother your children alongside of your husband's leadership, do you center your home around the word of God? Teens here, I, I see a couple of teens in the room and, and young adults. You guys are in a time of life where you're likely thinking more for yourselves about what you believe and, and deciding if, if you want to continue believing it or not. Let me tell you, the Bible will always prove itself to be trustworthy. If you read it for yourself and study it truly and deeply, you'll find it can answer even the hardest questions that you throw at it. Lastly, as a church... First point, do you understand the supreme value of God's word? This is why First Boynton joins with so many other churches around the city, around the state, around the world at this time to gather together and sit under the authority of God's word. You, you, you sit and you listen, not so much to me. I'm, I'm more hiding at this pulpit behind the word of God, showing you what's here. You sit and say, let us see the gold that is here. It's the word of God with the spirit of God that gives life to the church. And so, friends, as, as you look for a teaching pastor, whether it's me or whether it's someone else, you want to find someone who treasures this word and sees the transforming work of God in it. You want to find someone who, who sees it to be a gold mine, that if work is done here, you, you can pull out fine gold from between these pages. And as a church, you want to be a people that, that come eagerly every Sunday to sit under the word of God and to let it shape you over weeks and months and years. Don't be distracted by lesser amusements. Well, speaking of the shaping of the word of God, this leads us to our third and, and final point. We've seen the witness God gives and the word we need. Let's conclude with the response which God's revelation deserves. Look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. He's talking about the rules of God. 
Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Friends, when we see God's self-revelation clearly, as sinful humans, we become aware of our own sinfulness. This is the, the flow of the text. This is where I believe the text is together driving. So let me say this again. When we see God's self-revelation clearly in the world, and especially in the Word of God, as sinful humans, we become aware of our own sinfulness. So in, in verse 11, the psalmist had just recognized that God's rules warn his servants, and that obedience to God's commands, verse 11, brings great rewards. But in verse 12, he admits who can discern his errors. The, the rhetorical answer is, is no one. We know this, don't we? We cannot see our errors clearly. We are plagued with what David here in the text calls hidden faults. Those would be those, those sins that you find yourself doing even unintentionally. Even when we want to do right, our lives are riddled by sin. We are sinners by nature and choice. So these would be things like those selfish motives. When, when you serve another church member with hopes of being recognized, that just creep in and taint what you're doing. These would be things like that, that moment of impatience in traffic or in the, the line at the grocery store that you didn't even notice the impatience until afterwards. Or failing to care about your needy neighbor as you just pass them on your way. Or the pride that creeps into every nook and cranny of your life, kind of tainting even the good things that you're trying to do. You fill in the blank. We all have these hidden sins, don't we? But not only these hidden faults, Christians also fight what verse 13 calls presumptuous sins. Sins which presume on the grace of God. These are the sins that are open, willing acts of disobedience against God. This is like the last time you chose to lash out in anger or to be harsh with a, another family member. Or this would be like the time that you chose to share gossip that you know you should have just let die, but you still spoke. These are the open sins that you choose to do wrong knowingly. Both categories, the hidden and the open, are concerning to David. See, David has seen the purity and the perfection of God's word. And now he sees his life is not pure and his life is not perfect. And the response to, that God's revelation requires is seen as David then requests two things. First, David asks for help, God's help, with his sanctification. Look at this in the text. Verse 13, keep back your servant 
from, from presumptuous sins. God must hold us back by, from sinning. It is not by our own power. Verse 13, let them not have dominion over me. This, this word for reigning. So we need Christ to reign forever. You will reign forever, O God. Not the dominion of our sin in our lives. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He appeals to God to let both what is in his mouth, what comes out, the fruit, and what is in his heart, the root of his life, be pleasing to God. God must work this holiness in David. Christian, do you see this? Do you, your sanctification is completely dependent on God. God must work if you are to obey do you pray like this? Do you fight sin like this? David knows that he needs a rock. He needs a rock that is stronger than his own weak will. His own re resolve against sin is weak, and it is short. But Yahweh, verse 14, Yahweh, his covenant-keeping God, is his rock against sin. He is the rock who hung the stars in the sky. He is the rock who put the sun on its course. He is our rock. And so we say, behold, our God, Yahweh, seated on his throne, our rock. This rock can preserve David from sin. Christian, this week, in your life, this rock can preserve you from sin. But second, and this is where we'll end, notice that David also not only asks for God's help in his sanctification, David asks for God's help in his justification. I wonder if you've noticed that there at the end of verse 12. See, after acknowledging that our sin is so great that we can't even see it all, David makes a fascinating request in this verse. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. The heavens were declaring earlier, and so here David asks that God too would declare something, but this time about him. See, here David isn't looking forward, asking to be prevented from sin. He's looking backward at the sin that he has already committed. He needs to be declared innocent. How can a sinful man be declared innocent and God not be unjust? Friends, this is one of the questions that the whole Bible holds in tension and doesn't answer it until it finds its full re resolution in Jesus Christ. See, all of us are like David, having both hidden sins and high-handed sins against our glorious creator. Yet the story of the Bible finds its resolution in Jesus Christ as he came as the Son of God for us. He came and lived the life that you should have lived. And then he died the death that you and I both deserve to die. And he was buried and resurrected from the grave, killing and defeating both sin and death. In our place, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God for us. So that if we will place our faith in Jesus Christ... We can be declared innocent 
from our sin. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to talk to someone here today about this message. There's probably nothing more important that you could hear me say today than this idea of what Jesus Christ has done, to you, done for you on your behalf. Talk to me after the service, or, or find one of the elders here at First Boynton, or actually find any church member. The, the members of this church are, are people who believe this message, this good story of the gospel. See, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one whom creation says that it was by him that all things were created in heaven and on earth, this creator died for us. This is the great spectacle of all spectacles that demands our fullest attention. This is the spectacle that all revelation, general and specific, is pointing to. This is the spectacle that in just a moment we will sing about as we sing together, who has felt the nails in his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man, God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Jesus Christ paid the debt that we owed, and he redeemed us. And that is why we can say with David, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you for creating this world and leaving us a testimony to ourselves, to, to you, so that we are not wandering ourselves around looking and groping in darkness. God, you have established this creation for your glory. We praise you. We thank you for your words. God, your, your word is better than life. Your word is gold and is honey. Father, may we treasure it this week as if it is gold. May we mine it for the gold that is there. Father, we praise you for Jesus Christ and for his work on the cross for our sin. He indeed is our rock, and he indeed is our redeemer. So we praise him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>